Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith you have towards the Lord Jesus. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective, effective for the full knowledge of all that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort in your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed in you. Accordingly, though I could be bold in Christ to command you what is required, I yet for love's sake prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now also in prison for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Anisimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my own very heart. I would have been glad to keep him, that he could serve me in your place while I am imprisonment for the gospel. Perhaps this is why, but I did not want to uh, do anything without your consent so that your good work would be not by compulsion but of your own accord. For perhaps this, this is why he was parted for you from some time, so that you would have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What does biblical hospitality look like? What does biblical hospitality look like? Hospitality is a word that I think we know well. At least I've discovered that ever since moving to the south, moving to Texas. I always thought that Canadians were loving, warm people. And we really aren't in comparison with Texas. I mean, at hockey games, you know, fully grown men can fully embrace one another and have a great, you know, amount of hospitality, vigorous hospitality as Canadians. But down here, we've encountered an amazing, amazing warm welcome. And yet, as amazing as that has been for us as new cross-cultural missionaries moving into this new part of God's vineyard, the picture of hospitality in the Bible is so much more profound. The picture of what hospitality looks like in the Bible is radical. It, it, it takes hospitality to a whole new level. And for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at, I think, probably the best story in Scripture about biblical hospitality, radical hospitality. What does it mean to truly welcome and receive and forgive one another into this thing we call the church? It's the story of Philemon and Onesimus, 
I read the first 17 verses today. It's in page, on page 1,000 of your Pew Bibles, so I invite you to bring out your Bibles and or the Pew Bibles or your iPhones and follow along. Philemon, the letter to Philemon, this for me, this story of Philemon and Anesimus is where the rubber hits the road for Christianity. Up till this point, it's all theory. Now, are we going to practice it? Meet Philemon. Let me introduce the characters. There's Philemon. Philemon is a prosperous resident of Colossae. Um, this is, uh, he's a Christian. This is where the Colossian church meets in his home. So when you think of the letter to the Colossians, that's the church that meets in Philemon's home. Now, Philemon has a bit of a problem because his slave, Onesimus, has run away and has robbed him in the process. Meet Onesimus. Onesimus is a slave, a bond servant to be specific, which implies lifelong indentured service. In the Roman Empire, he is considered property to Philemon. Uh, Onesimus has no rights and has, for some reason we don't know, run away and robbed Philemon. But during his running away, he bumped into the Apostle Paul, it seems, in prison in Rome. Now, Onesimus may well have met Paul before when he would have visited the church in Philemon's home, but he meets Paul in Rome in prison, and somehow in that encounter, Philemon becomes a Christian. Onesimus becomes a Christian. Philemon's already a Christian. Onesimus, meeting Paul in Rome, becomes a Christian. He becomes Paul's assistant. He starts helping Paul out in prison. But now, Paul has a problem. Paul has a letter that the Holy Spirit has put on his heart to write out and to bring to Philemon's church. You know the letter that got written. It's in your Bibles. It's called the letter to the Colossians. And he needs to deliver that from his prison cell in Rome to Philemon's home where the church in Colossae meets. Who's better to deliver it than Onesimus? Who's from there? And of course, in this moment, Paul knows that he can finally fix a situation that must have been weighing on his heart. I mean, he knows Onesimus is a runaway slave. He knows that he's robbed Philemon, and he knows that he needs to ultimately bring these two Christians back now together, and the opportunity is here. I've got a letter. Onesimus, you're taking it back. Could you imagine the, the fear for Onesimus in that moment? The runaway slave has to deliver the letter back to Philemon's house. Well, Paul writes an extra letter. It's a little postcard, and it's in our Bibles, and you're looking at it right now. It's called the letter to Philemon. And this is Anesimus' only defense as he returns to his former master that he ran away and robbed. It seems, as you first read it, like a bit of a weak letter. I mean, nowhere in it does Paul just come out and say, hey, Philemon, forgive the guy, welcome him home, Make it clear. It's, it's not clear in the text. Paul seems to sort of meander around it. But the reason is that the book of Philemon is a masterful uh, example of Greco-Roman persuasion literature. Now, persuasion literature is, is a type of literature that was written where I want to get you to do something, but I don't want to tell you what to do. I want you to do it on your own volition. I want you to do it because you want to do it, 
But I have a specific thing I want you to do. I mean, look at verse 8. Accordingly, Paul writes, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. I mean, clearly, Philemon, there's something required here. But verse 14 says, I didn't want to do anything without your consent in order that your goodness would be not by compulsion, but of your own accord. I want you, Philemon, to do the right thing because you want to do the right thing. And so Paul is carefully encoding that right thing in the letter. There's actually three things that Paul is really pushing Philemon, persuading Philemon to do with respect to Onesimus. This week, we're just going to look at the first one. The first thing that really Paul is trying to convince Philemon he needs to do here is seen in verse 17. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him, Onesimus, as you would receive me. I mean, this is a picture of radical welcome. Radical welcome, radical receiving, radical access. I want you to receive him as, that's the word as, which means just like. The same way that you'd receive me, Paul the Apostle, I want you to receive this runaway thieving slave. And you want to say at some point, okay, hold on a second. Paul, I'm a Christian, but let's get practical. The guy ran away and he robbed me. I mean, how can I ever trust this guy again? How can I receive him just as I would receive you? That's ridiculous. And yet, it's not ridiculous according to the gospel. Now, let me just say a little pastoral word for one second here that applies to both this week and next week. And any time that I'm preaching or teaching on radical forgiveness, radical welcoming, radical acceptance... If the Anesimus in your life, if the Anesimus you're thinking of or the Anesimuses in your life you're thinking of who've really hurt you, if they would fall into the category of the, what I call the four A's, abuse, adultery, addiction, or abandonment, abuse, adultery, addiction, or abandonment, you've got to read it in a slightly different way. I'm not saying the gospel doesn't apply there. It does apply there. But in those cases when the four A's are going on, you need a little more pastoral help and wisdom and help in community to apply it. So please do not go home and say, oh, well, Father Paul said that this person who abused me, I'm just supposed to radically welcome them. You're actually meant to call the church office and talk to one of the priests, and we can walk through this with you. Do you hear me in that? Quite seriously. That there's pastoral application. The gospel works even there, but it requires much more help. You hear me? All right. Amen. So, and don't use abuse too liberally, okay? Because we're a culture now that everybody abuses everybody all the time. I mean, I really mean abuse. Okay? Not just my hurt feelings got hurt, but I mean abuse. Okay? So, you heard that. How can Paul ask Philemon to do this? How can he ask him to radically welcome this one. Well, part of the root comes down, it all comes down to really one word, as it often does in my sermons. Um, verse 8. The beginning of verse 8 is in my Bible, accordingly, but it's the same word, therefore. 
And as you've heard me say several times already, whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you've got to ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. That's right. Why is it there? It's a conjunction. It's important. What therefore means, grammar, lesson, whatever just came before is the foundation and root and reason for what I'm about to say. Paul says in verse 8, accordingly, therefore, based on what I just said, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required. Well, what just came before this verse 8? Verses 4 through 7. Yes, I can count. Verses 4 through 7 come before verse 8. But what does it say in verses 4 through 7? Verses 4 through 7 talks all about Philemon's love for the saints. And just as a side note, saints in the New Testament is not a description of people who live on stained glass windows. A saint is anyone who is a Christian, anyone who's in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. Verses four through seven talk about Philemon's great love for the saints. Look at verse five. Because I hear of your love for all the saints. Verse seven, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. What a description. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You see, what it's saying is that Philemon deeply loves the saints. And in fact, Philemon's name even means man of love. That's what Philemon means, man of love. So everything about you, Philemon, is you are a man of love. You love the saints. Well, guess what? Verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Which means Onesimus became a saint. You, Philemon, love the saints. Guess who just became a saint? Why can I therefore be bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required? Because, O lover of the saints, Onesimus just became a saint. You love Onesimus. I mean, talk about persuasion letter. He's making his point clear. This is why in verse 9 he says, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I'm going to appeal to you, Philemon, at the root of who you are, O man of love. I'm not going to command you and force you. I'm going to say, you lover of the saints, for love's sake, here's a new man that you love as a saint. You see, this is all rooted in Onesimus' new identity in Christ. I mean, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, whoever's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And we say that and we put it on greeting cards, but what is, do we really believe that when someone who's really hurt us becomes a saint? That they're really new in Christ? I mean, Philemon, here's this man who's genuinely really hurts you. Can you believe in his new identity that he is new? He's not who he was. He is new, the old is gone. Verse 6, there's this great word, koinonia. Uh, in verse 6, uh, Paul says, I pray that the sharing of your faith, which has the root there, koinonia, the, the, the living out in community of your faith. I pray that Philemon, the living out of your faith in community would um, have the full effect, would be effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. What he's saying in verse 6 is, okay, finally, I mean, you've got lots of love and lots of faith. 
And now I'm praying that this can be lived out in your community, the sharing of that love and faith, living it out. It's that word koinonia in scripture. It means fellowship. It means family. It means togetherness. It's radical. Because what koinonia really means, if you understand what that word, that idea of fellowship means, is that we are together. We are united. We are one. I mean, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says it pretty powerfully, this idea of koinonia, when he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's not just a sentiment, it's saying that you have now been united to Christ. You've been brought into a unity of Christ, and Christ can't be fragmented, can he? I mean, Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity. This is the eternal son of God. There's no dividing up Jesus. So if you are united in Christ as a Christian, and I'm united in Christ, and we're all united in Christ, then we are one in Christ, and that's indivisible. We are united. We are one. This is what Philemon is, is, is being challenged with. It's interesting. Uh, Anisimus' new identity um, includes a few different things. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my child Anisimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Anisimus has become Paul's spiritual son through conversion, which I think is his way of reminding Philemon that very likely Philemon is Paul's spiritual son through conversion. It's like, just like you, Philemon, I led you to faith and I led him to faith. I'm father to both of you. Verse 11 um, goes on to say, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. Uh, it's interesting that it's a play on words. Uh, Anisimus' name means useful. Like, if you want to give him a title, it's Mr. Useful, right? That, that's his name, useful. That's what it means. And, and yet when Paul here says, formerly he was useless to you, and now he's become in truly useful, he's, he's playing on, on, a, on another word there uh, for useless and useful, uh, the word akrestos. And, and, and if, you, if you hear akrestos, and it sounds kind of like Christos, that's on purpose. In other words, what he's trying to say is, okay, here's Mr. Useful. He was actually, without Christ, useless, not truly Anisimus. But now that he's no longer useless, akrestos, he's eukrestos, he's in Christ, he's now truly useful, he's now truly Anisimus. Mr. Useful is finally useful to you because he's in Jesus. Verse 12 goes on to say that I am sending him back to you, sending my very hearts. In other words, that Anisimus has become beloved to Paul, my heart. It's interesting that Paul opens verse 1 with saying to Philemon, my beloved fellow worker. Philemon, you're beloved by me, and Anisimus is beloved by me. Verse 13 that I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Um, that's kind of a bit of a low blow there. You know, where were you when I was in prison? He's here serving me, I guess, on your behalf, right? He's standing in for you, Philemon. He's doing what maybe you should be doing, serving me for in, during my imprisonment. Um, verse 15 says that... Uh, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. 
Just remember now, Philemon, Anesimus is in Christ, therefore he is going to live eternally. He's got an eternal future. I mean, it's that lovely reminder that we often need in our lives. If there's someone in the church that really gets under your skin, you know, there's an encouragement to sort of sort that out because guess what? You're going to live with them forever. And just think about that. You're going to live with them forever. So we better, better get, may as well get started with it now, you know, sorting this stuff out. And finally, verse 16, he says, no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother. Your brother, Philemon. I loved uh, in our baptism of each of our children, um, Monica uh, would always get really teary and say with each of our girls, I mean, my wife's not, you know, shy with tears. Um, She always says that's how the Holy Spirit speaks through her, through tears. But she would say with each of the baptism of our four girls, she'd say, not only my daughter, but now my sister. I mean, that's a picture of unity in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul says, therefore, based on all of this new identity, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you've received me. Yes, it's that radical. Because yes, this is what the gospel means. To live like this would cause the world to sit up and say there's something different about this group, isn't there? I mean, Paul himself writing this, just just remember that Paul himself writing this, he knows what it is like to be radically received because of this new identity in Christ. Paul, who writes this many years before, in Acts chapter 9, was on the road to Damascus. And while he was there, the Lord Jesus appeared to him and he was converted. This first century terrorist, this murderer, this one who hunted down the church, much worse than a runaway thieving slave, Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Hear these words from, from, from Acts 9. Don't think this isn't running through his head as he writes this letter to Philemon. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Lord, here I am. And the Lord said to him, rise, Ananias, and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. For he is my chosen instrument to carry out my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laid his hands on him and said, Can you hear it? Can you see it? Brother Saul. He walks in and puts his hands on this terrorist's head and says, Brother Saul. And now he says to Philemon, receive him as you would receive me. Because this is the gospel. This is what God has done in us, for us in Christ Jesus. Nothing less. 
Do you not think in God's eyes that we are all runaway, thieving slaves? Do you think in God's eyes we are nothing less than those who've rebelled and rejected, those who are broken sinners? And yet in Christ Jesus, he has come and welcomed us. We have access to him through Jesus because of the cross. It's funny, I was debating with someone recently about the prayer of humble access, one of the things that I brought back uh, into our liturgy uh, on, a, on a regular basis uh, during communion is this prayer of humble access where we say, we do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. And I was debating with someone recently, uh, it was actually a bishop, um, but he was, um, we were arguing about this and I said, no, I said, this is not a depressing prayer. You know, oh, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, you know, that kind of thing. This is a prayer that tells us in a real way, when we come to communion, let's remember how we got here. I mean, it's a a prayer that reminds us, humbles us before God and says, as we sit here, and I love this communion rail where we can actually see one another and you see this body gathered. Isn't the church the craziest place on earth? Where people of every socioeconomic category, every ethnicity, every background, every style, every, you know, like, put any kind, that, that, that picture from, a, from Galatians 3, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, we're all together, we're all one, this picture of oneness. And we pray this prayer of humble access because it says, don't you ever forget that you did not deserve to come. You are here because of mercy. You are here because of grace. You are here because of love. You have access because of what he has done for you in his loving mercy. Philemon, you have loved the saints. Will you love this one, this new saint? Will you welcome him because of his new identity in Christ? There's more that Philemon is going to be called to. We're going to talk about that next week, and that's going to get crazy. But for now, what does biblical hospitality look like? It looks like people taking seriously that whoever's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It looks like a radical embrace of koinonia, Oneness, togetherness, sharing together, family. It looks like Ananias towards Saul. It looks like Philemon towards Anesimus. It looks like Jesus towards broken, sinful humanity. And it is what we are called to look like at Christ Church. And if we do, more and more, it will be for the sake of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.